SpyTalk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to SpyTalk. You know, Gene, it occurred again to me this morning that before the 911 terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center towers and Pentagon, you could basically count the number of investigative reporters specializing in intelligence on one hand. The same went for ex-intelligence officials writing books and articles. Now there are scores of both, and it's a challenge to keep up with all the daily revelations and scoops. But one thing I like to do is to visit fresh new treatments of events that were a very big deal back in the day, but have basically been forgotten. One of them was the breathtaking terrorist plot in London in 2006, to take down several transatlantic flights out of London heading for America. Former CIA analyst Aki Peretz revisits the episode in a new book, Disruption, Inside the Largest Counterterrorism Investigation in History. Here he is describing the utter panic in the White House as the CIA was virtually begging UK security agencies to ditch legal niceties and get the terrorists off the streets. Fran Townsend, who was the assistant to the president on Homeland Security and Counterterrorism. Every day, President Bush would go up to Fran Townsend and say, do we let the planes fly for another 24 hours? And she would think about it and she would talk to some of the top people and they said, okay, let's let it go for another 24 hours. But imagine if you have to make a choice to shut down the entire airspace around the United States every 24 hours because of this plot. People were really on tenterhooks and the United States had to rely on the British to actually pull the trigger. They actually had to go in and arrest all these guys. And the British kept asking for more time because they wanted to make a legal case, which I totally get. And if the roles were reversed, if uh, there was a major attack that's going to strike Britain and the British needed the FBI to take down all these guys, there'd be immense pressure to try to make the FBI move. And so I, I'm really sympathetic toward the British security establishment. But the United States decided to make a choice, and, uh, and that's what we did. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Aki Peretz later in the show. Meanwhile, Gene, you've gotten some insight into another nagging security problem here at home. How to deal with suspected Chinese espionage agents in universities. That's right. Frequently, urgently, U.S. intelligence and law enforcement officials talk about the threat posed by China's technological juggernaut, fueled at least in part by the theft of research from American industry and academia, says FBI Director Christopher Wray. China pays scientists at American universities to secretly bring our knowledge and innovation back to China, including valuable federally funded research. To put it bluntly, this means American taxpayers are effectively footing the bill for China's own technological development. China then leverages its ill-gotten gains to undercut U.S. research institutions and companies, blunting our nation's advancement and costing American jobs. And we're seeing more and more of these cases. The China Initiative is the U.S. government's response. Begun in 2018, its goal is to counter Chinese economic espionage, including theft from academic institutions. But has it worked? 
A recent study by the MIT Technology Review found that of the 77 cases brought so far, only 25% or 19 cases actually involved economic espionage or the theft of trade secrets. More common, charges related to making false statements, wire fraud, tax offenses. But Anna Puglisi, director of biotechnology programs and senior fellow at Georgetown University's Center for Security and Emerging Technology, says it is important for law enforcement and academia to deal with the challenge and threat China presents. It's really important that we find principled ways to mitigate the policies of the nation state um, that's ever more authoritarian, does not share our values, and really seeks to undermine the global norms of science, because that's really what we're talking about. So how much information do you think the Chinese are gathering from U.S. academic institutions? Well, I think um, it's important to step back. Uh, China has a multi-decade strategy to target uh, technologies. And it's not just a U.S. problem. This is um, you know, U.S. Um, and our, our like-minded and our allies, because it really does view technology as a national asset. And it really views a, a strong S&T base as key to continued its military modernization, as well as building its economy. So how important would the information be that they could get from colleges and universities? A lot of it is eventually published anyway. That's an excellent point, you know, and we hear that all the time, but I think the challenge is, is that it is it's eventually published, and that's when people choose. People should, the PIs and our researchers should have the opportunity to choose when they publish and what they release and what they don't. Um, and one of the things I think that people really forget as well is that it's not only the data that uh, people release and publish in these papers, it's what doesn't work as well as what works. Because really, this is the time and resource intensive part in a lot of ways of the development cycle. And so um, you, you could almost argue or, or kind of losing, losing those seed corns of innovation because China has not only its own ideas to work with, but as well as our own. Because we hear one of those, the assumptions of, you know, we'll, we'll always out-innovate them. And, and I think that's something that we really kind of need to, to revisit if that's still true. Well, we've often been able to out-innovate them because we've had an international cadre of scientists. And some people say we are cutting off our nose to spite our face because now a lot of Chinese scientists are going back to China to work rather than staying here and working at a U.S. enterprise. Valid point? Um, I would say it's really oversold. I don't think we've seen a wholesale movement uh, to leave the different academics. And so that is a really important point. It's something, you know, we are, we've built, you know, we're an immigrant nation. That has been our biggest strength. And that's something that we need to um, continue to, to welcome the best and brightest. And, However, yet, and I, yet Chinese scientists and Chinese Americans are saying they feel profiled on American campuses. Right. And that is really unfortunate. Um, but I think we also have to remember that that China um, has these policies and programs in place to exploit its diaspora. And its statecraft is directed at them to really exploit identity politics by promoting any changes in U.S. policy or as ethnic profiling, offering a narrative 
you know, about merely, merely being a proponent of development and science, I think in really order to divert attention from its own questionable behavior. Some people are saying, where's the beef? There haven't been a whole lot of successful prosecutions here. Um, one study said that under the China initiative that was begun to fight espionage, um, 48% of the cases brought resulted in no charges of economic espionage, trade theft, or espionage-related crimes. I think in that particular case, um, they disregarded cases that were dropped because people left the country. So let me ask you again, where's the beef? Um, where, where's the proof that this is a significant problem? Well, I think what's important to remember is that, or, or I, actually I said the question is, do we wait until our entire innovation base has been eroded um, before we do something about it? We've been able to demonstrate um, using Chinese language material, policies and programs that the Chinese government has that have been in place for two, over two decades to ex that explicitly state that they want to exploit their diaspora to fill their strategic gaps. We need to be welcoming um, for people to come, the best and brightest, and also to stay. But we also need to protect the investments that, you know, will be, that will be our future. That was Anna Puglisi of Georgetown University's Center for Security and Emerging Technology, previously a National Counterintelligence Officer for East Asia at the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. But some people, including some academics, disagree with her perspective. One of them, former FBI agent Mike German, now with the Brennan Center for Justice. I asked him if he thought the China initiative had been effective in stopping Chinese espionage at colleges and universities. Uh, no, it clearly hasn't been effective in, in fighting espionage. And if the China initiative focused on actual criminal acts that are stealing U.S. trade secrets, that's important work and that's actually happening and that's something they should do. But that's a minority of these cases. And instead, what they're doing is turning to academics and punishing them for paperwork errors or other uh, crimes that have nothing to do with the theft of information that's secret. Critics have said this amounts to racial profiling on college campuses. Would you agree? Absolutely. I mean, it's almost definitionally racial profiling that the government is claiming any nexus to China justifies inclusion under this program. And, and it's not just the Justice Department, you know, again, because we've moved from this area of protecting our national security secrets to this concept of competition as a threat. Uh, what we're doing is, is making it harder for international students to work here in a way that, that that benefits our country, right? That, uh, and, and again, we're at a period where during a pandemic, where the effects of climate change, where other security issues that are increasingly harming Americans are no longer in the national security realm that we can send the, the US military to go out and solve. We need scientific and technological advancements at the time that we're closing down our, our our programs to, to the kind of assistance that uh, foreign students and researchers can provide. China has said explicitly they want to dominate in technology. 
and they have indicated they will do it by whatever means necessary. Isn't it perfectly valid for law enforcement to be taking a look at what's happening at U.S. universities and seeing if information is being siphoned from there? My experience as an FBI agent tells me to focus where there's evidence. And what we see here is a lot of rhetoric about the threat that isn't substantiated by the evidence, right? To the extent that the FBI director, Christopher Wray, said this is a whole of government problem, that this is you know, somehow different from what the type of espionage other countries uh, commit. We've invested, the Justice Department has invested in this China Initiative program, but they're not finding those cases, right? We're talking about uh, 19 cases over three years that have actually charged economic economic espionage under the China Initiative. That doesn't sound like a whole of society threat. So, to the extent that the the data that that the Justice Department is producing is not targeting the crimes that it says are happening, that's a problem. And part of that problem, I believe, is that they have labeled this program in a way that promotes anti-Asian profiling by agents. So many many more of these cases are not economic espionage. What they are is finding somebody with what they call a nexus to China, which is often just ancestry. Uh, This is affecting Chinese Americans and others who aren't Chinese nationals, but uh, have Chinese descent. 90% of the cases, according to the MIT study, uh, are people of Chinese descent, and they're just scrutinizing them in a way to find any violation they may have committed. And there was a saying in the FBI when I worked there that nobody's administratively pure. If we put the the resources and the investigative tools uh, to bear on any individual, we can find some mistake they made somewhere that justifies prosecution. So those resources that are supposed to be devoted to stopping Chinese espionage are instead focused on uh, uh, punishing people of Chinese descent for any kind of administrative error they may have committed. Or is it possible the FBI is just doing a bad job with the investigations? And I would say that's equally something that Congress should be looking at and and that the Department of Justice should be looking at. You know, uh, there's the case of Professor uh, Anming Hu, Uh, from the University of Tennessee. Two-year investigation that the agent started, according to his own testimony, by doing a Google search about what uh, local uh, researchers may have some link to China, some nexus to China. Two-year investigation that quickly found he was not a Chinese spy. And yet, they continued that investigation and prosecution uh, because of some obscure conflict of interest they claimed on some uh, on a NASA grant, went to trial, again, huge investment of resources against somebody they don't believe is a spy. And, and you know, fortunately for Professor Hu, the, the judge uh, found he was innocent of that uh, fraud claim. Uh, but it, it just shows the investment the Justice Department is making in prosecuting people of Chinese descent rather than prosecuting Chinese espionage. There was another case 
of a guy who was a medical researcher who was caught at a U.S. airport, uh, claimed he didn't have anything of scientific value when they found, what, 21 vials hidden in the socks in his suitcase. So it does happen. Oh, absolutely it does happen. And it, But there's a difference also between people who are stealing intellectual property or trade secrets for their own personal benefit and the, the activity of a foreign government in using its intelligence services to commit those crimes. And you know, to be clear, uh, former CIA and Department of Defense Secretary Robert Gates has said, yes, China engages in economic espionage, but so do no, numerous other countries. And yet we don't see the same kind of effort against those countries, e even though the loss, once that intellectual property is lost, it doesn't stay in the country who stole it, right? It can be resold to other countries. So the idea that somehow by focusing all our resources on one country, we're, we're stemming the problem, it's clearly not demonstrated in the, in the data that's produced by the Justice Department. So I would argue this whole program is flawed and we need to do a better job of understanding what the current threat is, describing it accurately and addressing it narrowly to, in a narrowly tailored fashion to actually stop that kind of crime. So people who support the program say China is not the United States and uh, that China can bring great pressure to bear on individuals and extract from them what it might need from them. And so um, better to take the more careful view of the individuals who might be working at the behest of the government. And I think that's the problematic way that, that many in the national security enterprise look at national security, that they don't realize the benefits that we get from the, the assistance of foreign countries in our scientific and, and technological advancements. That, you know, if you look at uh, American science, it has always benefited from immigrants coming to this country because it provides a, a freer environment for them to study and conduct their research and publish their writings. And closing that off actually harms our national security. It doesn't assist it. And again, if, if, if there is this huge all of society problem, why isn't the, the FBI identifying those individuals who are government agents from China who, who are working this? That's, that's what we need to do. We need to make sure that the rhetoric actually matches the production and just charging people because they're Chinese have Chinese ancestry is not the answer to Chinese government espionage programs. And one other clear thing that we haven't discussed yet is that many of these cases are failing, you know, a hot, much higher percentage than you see in normal federal prosecutions. So that to me is evidence of, of significant overreach. And I believe that overreach somewhat is baked into this program where the purpose of it was to create a deterrent effect. But who is it deterring? Is it deterring Chinese spies? Well, they're not being caught. So it, what it's deterring is Chinese researchers and, and other foreign researchers who might come to the United States and help the United States uh, benefit from their knowledge and, and, and research. Do you see the FBI repeating history with this China initiative program? 
Absolutely. A lot of what I see in the China initiative are just recycled tactics that were used in the early part of the war on terrorism, where uh, the FBI and the Justice Department very clearly identify a population within the United States as the suspect community. And of course, in the war on terrorism, the suspect community was Muslim Americans, and it justified all kinds of surveillance and, and selective prosecution of Muslim Americans under the guise that, well, they might someday become terrorists, so we can justify them using the Al Capone strategy. You know, Al Capone was charged with tax evasion rather than his gangland slayings and, and racketeering. Uh, you know, that, as John Ashcroft said, you know, if you spit on the sidewalk, we will arrest you. Well, that's not really very effective. Uh, and I learned this working undercover, where the first time I was accused of being an FBI agent by the neo-Nazi group I had infiltrated, I became very afraid. But once I realized they accused everyone of being an FBI agent, I realized that actually protected me. That un unfounded suspicion was actually something I could hide in much easier. Uh, and, and unfortunately, what we have is, is a replication of that where Asian Americans are being targeted, not because there's evidence that they're engaged in economic espionage or other serious kinds of crime, but rather simply because of their national origin and, and then selectively prosecuted based on some minor criminal violation that otherwise wouldn't have been investigated or prosecuted. So are you saying that this program may make it easier for actual Chinese spies to operate? Absolutely. I think Chinese spies looking at the, the data that uh, the MIT analysis showed would feel very confident that they're unlikely to be targeted by this program and that instead people who have no connection to the Chinese government are being targeted. And so when they, if they ever do get accused, they can just claim that same umbrella of protection that I'm just being targeted because of my ancestry or nationality. Uh, so I don't, I believe this is not just an ineffective program, but actually counterproductive if the goal is to actually identify government intelligence agents uh, from China who are here uh, to harm the United States in any way. Can you talk more broadly about the FBI's history with Chinese populations and individuals? The missteps involved in the FBI's investigation of Chinese espionage are epic. You, know, you might remember from the 1990s, the investigation and prosecution of uh, a government scientist named Wen Ho Li, Chinese ancestry, to, and went through trials. And you know, to the end, the uh, U.S. District Court judge actually apologized to him on behalf of, of the U.S. government uh, for the, the inappropriate uh, tactics that the government had used trying to prove he was a spy when uh, the evidence didn't show that. Um, it later, even more problematic case uh, where the FBI was had learned that its its own documents were were uh, being transferred to Chinese intelligence. Uh, started uh, uh, looking internally at threats and identified a Chinese American agent uh, and and ruined her career. Uh, based on a polygraph, which is a dubious instrument uh, that, that even federal courts know is unreliable, yet uh, they, they uh, destroyed a, 
uh, uh, Chinese American Asian's career. Uh, when it was later discovered, it was actually her white supervisor who was the one who had been leaking information to uh, one of his Chinese uh, informants, uh, Chinese American informants, uh, and had a, an improper sexual relationship with that informant that had been going on for decades. And so you know, we shouldn't, we need to be very uh, aggressive in overseeing FBI and, and checking FBI claims about Chinese espionage because its record is not positive. There is a, a, a belief within the intelligence community that's often expressed publicly that people of Chinese ancestry are somehow more likely to end up spying for China uh, than others. And, and that's not true. There are many white uh, Americans who have been caught actually spying for China, giving them national security secrets, not just trade secrets. Uh, and so it's not accurate. And often what you'll see is, is the Justice Department or the FBI or the broader intelligence community will say, well, if you look at our Chinese espionage cases, the vast majority of them are of China, of the defendants are of Chinese nationality. But that's measuring who they're targeting. If I only look at people of Chinese ancestry, of course, the number of cases I'm able to bring are going to disproportionately represent them, but you're not measuring who is spying, you're measuring who is being caught. That was Mike German of the Brennan Center for Justice, Liberty and National Security Program. He was an FBI special agent for 16 years. You know, Jeff, the China Initiative was supposed to educate colleges and universities about the potential threat of espionage, but some in law enforcement wonder just how receptive they are to the message, given the fact that China is funneling large sums of money to some research institutions through tuition for Chinese students, through various gifts and grants, some of which I might say come with strings attached. And we are talking about some big bucks here. The Department of Education says U.S. schools routinely fail to report foreign money they receive, but self-reported data between 2015 and 2019 shows that MIT received $125 million from Chinese entities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the Chinese challenge is multifaceted and sophisticated. Of course, uh, their students here are going to bring back information. And as you brought out with your interview with uh, Anna Puglisi, uh, a lot of the uh, stuff that the Chinese gather here are, is published in academic journals and so forth. But Mike German brings up this thorny issue of racial profiling. And you got to wonder if there is some hysteria, as he sort of suggested, uh, about the Chinese that we don't direct at other major espionage uh, actors here, which includes Israel and France and others. The, and there are Russian students here, but we don't beat the drum so loudly about that. That is not to minimize the Chinese threat at all, but it's just interesting that we keep singling out the Chinese and and nobody else. Well, interesting to note that a member of the board of MIT's McGovern Brain Institute resigned very recently she brought up these allegations of racial profiling. She pushes back saying, uh, you know, I'm someone who lived in China. I know the language. 
That's not what this is about. But she resigned her position saying she doesn't believe MIT has a firm grasp on the risks of partnerships with Chinese institutions in cutting edge areas of science that are subject to misappropriation or abuse for military modernization or repression. That's interesting. You got to wonder if there's a profit motive with some of these universities. I'm not saying MIT and Harvard because they're they're rolling in dough. But $125 million to MIT is a pretty big sum. And Harvard, Yale, a number of other institutions do pretty well with Chinese donations too, according to this Department of Education data. Yeah, it adds up. And less well-heeled uh, colleges and universities can really use that Chinese uh, scholarship money. So- it's not going to go away, and we'll be on this again and again as time rolls by. A reminder, Spy Talk is on Substack. You can subscribe. Another reminder, we have a PodTrack survey on our show notes. We'd love to learn a little bit more about exactly who's listening. And stay tuned. We've got another interview coming up about a big terrorist plot that fortunately never came to pass. In the summer of 2006, a UK dragnet rolled up nearly 20 Pakistani-British terrorists who were planning to bring explosives onto several jetliners leaving London for the States. Here's how the BBC announced the stunning arrests. Tonight, the alleged terrorist plot, which could have caused civilian deaths on an unprecedented scale. President Bush says we are at war with Islamic fascism. 24 British citizens accused of planning to blow up 10 transatlantic flights. How a tip-off from Karachi could have averted a major disaster. With unrest in the neighborhoods where the men were arrested, are people confident the authorities have got it right this time? I'm not too happy with the, the way the intelligence, or so-called intelligence, has turned out to be. And I, I think it's very, very flawed. And I'll be reporting from Heathrow. The planes are taking off again, but it's been a day of massive disruption. Had the plot gone through, it would have been a horrifying disaster with the shock value of the 911 attacks. But some great intelligence work aborted it, not without scaring the hell out of U.S. and British security agencies, which had been totally taken by surprise by earlier suicide attacks on the London Underground and a bus. Aki Parrott's a former CIA counterterrorism analyst himself tells the whole story in an absolutely riveting book out this month, Disruption Inside the Largest Counterterrorism Investigation in History. Aki Peretz, welcome to Spy Talk. I was absolutely intrigued by your new book on the 2006 plot to bring down several airplanes. What struck me about your story? was that it was such an intricate, detailed, and audacious plot. And yet the guys who were carrying it out in London, or trying to carry it out, were so feckless. According to the recordings made by British security services, they, they couldn't even get their suicide videos right, at least in one case. Tell us about these guys and what they were trying to do. So it was a series of individuals uh, there were there were three major guys in London connected to their ringleader in Pakistan. But then these guys, 
through a variety of means because they they knew people from college and they knew people from the neighborhood. They started pulling in all these other individuals, uh, just just guys around this, just folks that they knew from from all over the place. They're pals, and they they literally were pals. They just worked together. One one fellow was the best friend of the ringleader's younger brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, just folks around town, mm-hmm. and they brought them into this conspiracy, and they convinced them over maybe over the course of eight weeks, maybe a little longer, uh, to record various videos about uh, attacks and suicide bombings and so forth. Um, the people, it turns out that the, the, the periphery people actually didn't know all the specifics of what they were gonna carry out, but they went and they, they recorded these uh, 20, 30 minute long uh, suicide attack videos that uh, they were pretty specific and pretty gory. Pretty good, pretty good evidence if the when the Brits closed in on them. Oh, absolutely. Uh, But the funny thing is, is that these guys weren't very good speakers. And so they would have the ring. The ringleader actually sat down and wrote out most of their speeches. Um, And then you actually if you actually listen to all those speeches back to back, they all basically sound the same because they were all written by one guy, (laughs) essentially. And so they were reading from a script. Uh, They didn't really practice. There was one individual. Uh, who basically the ringleader told him to go go write his script and, and think about what he wants to say. And he didn't even do it until the night before. Mm. So imagine you're a college kid or you're, you know, you're a guy in your 20s and you're told this is the most important speech of your life and you're not even going to bother <laughs> putting pen to paper until, until uh, the night before. So they needed a better showrunner or a better cast at <laughs> least. So let's yeah. get to the plot itself. Another striking thing about it is how so many of the chemicals they were going to use to attack these airliners could be bought at local, you know, pharmacies and other supply shops. But tell us the essence of the plot. Essentially, this goes back. I want to take you back to 2005. So if you remember, there was an attack on the on London transport on mm-hmm. 7-7-2005. Uh, four guys carrying explosives in their backpacks walked into uh, the, tube. The, the underground, you know, the tube, and also a bus uh, at rush hour and blew themselves up to kill 62 people, including themselves. Turns out security services in the States, security services in the UK and elsewhere had no idea they were coming. Mm-hmm. Two weeks later, they actually tried to pull uh, another cell connected to the same ringleader, tried to pull it off. Mm-hmm. But they they bobbled the the chemical compounds. Building building bombs is actually harder than you think, and so these guys didn't. Uh, the the ringleader did not uh, uh, cr- create the bombs correctly, and so they 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 blew up. It was like a firecracker, uh, and but the the main explosion didn't occur. So in two thousand six, they were trying again. They were trying very hard to do this, and we you had several individuals from this plot going to Pakistan to learn how to build bombs correctly. They learned from the 721 is that you need to tr- you need to train these guys correctly. Mm. But by the time that the 77 attack happened, and remember this was the worst attack in London since World War II, uh, it's probably the I believe it's the worst attack terrorist attack in London in Lo- in in British in modern British history. So they uh, they uh, were esca- escalating uh, their objective this time around wasn't just walking into the subway or the underground, as they call it in London. Mm-hmm. It was to take down several airliners. Right. Uh, what they realized, even though this is the worst attack in British history, British society kind of went back to normal. You know, they scrubbed 
the Fitzy opened the day the day after. Nothing really. It was they didn't shake the the so-called infidels to their boots, and so they wanted to dream bigger. And so that's why you had excellent individuals. I mean, very sharp guys with British passports who haven't served any a day in prison. They went to Pakistan. They learned how to build these bombs. They they were in connection with this other fellow, the the ringleader. His name is Rashid Ralph in Pakistan. Uh, and they went back and they built a very big cell uh, and they were going to create, they were going to create mayhem in the air. Uh, and luckily for a variety of reasons, uh, they were, they were, one guy was monitored who led to another guy who was monitored who led to the entire cell. And this is, this is how it became the largest counterterrorism investigation probably in modern history. So they were going to create mayhem in the air. And this was by smuggling uh chemical explosives in soda pop or soda bottles uh and or juice and or juice bottles onto the planes mixing them and then blowing up the planes have i got that right yeah yeah uh, what was interesting is that these were unopened uh uh egg, which is like gatorade in the uk uh this is at a time that you could bring just liquids onto planes mm -hmm. and what would happen is the security folks would just look at the look at the bottle and they would look at the top and it's obviously not open. So they would just let you through. Mm -hmm. What they did is they flipped over the bottle. There's a, there's a little button on the bottom of a, of a mm -hmm. plastic bottle, popped it out, took out all the liquid, put the liquid explosives into the bottle, stopped it up with a, some glue or, or some sort of uh, stopping mechanism. And then they brought and they put some coloring in it because it's kind of a gloppy mm -hmm. uh, uh, concentrated hydrogen peroxide was this gloppy stuff um, to make it look like a sports drink. A Gatorade drink. And they just put it in. A Gatorade drink, and they just put it into their carry-on, along with a bunch of other things that look totally benign, like wires and some batteries and a camera. Uh, and then when they're on the on the plane, they could just reassemble everything, and then push the you know pull the trigger, so to speak, uh, at the time of their choosing. And they almost got away with it. I'm talking with Aki Parrots, the author of Disruption Inside the Largest Counterterrorism Investigation in History. Now, how did British security get onto this? Who gave them the tip that this plot was afoot? That is a great question. And this is actually one which has been rather uh, uh, deliberately concealed, I think, until this book. The interesting thing is they knew that this, the, the main character, the main bomb, the ring, sorry, the main ringleader in London, his name is Ali, his last name is Ali. Uh, was transiting back and forth from Pakistan constantly. And then one day, they decided to check his, his luggage. And they found all the stuff in it, uh, including a bunch, about three or four dozen batteries. And so the question is, why? Number one, why did they target his luggage? Number two is, why, did he, why was he carrying batteries? It was, and that, that day was the one that jump-started the, the investigation for the, the British police, for the London Metropolitan Police. So but for some really reason, he popped up on the radar out of the mm -hmm. blue. Yeah. And so, but that means that they were monitoring him beforehand. One of the things was, is that going back to the 2005 uh, folks, there was one of the ringleaders there for some reason kept calling him because they're friends. Mm -hmm. They're friends from the neighborhood. And so they called each other in Pakistan when they were both co-located in Pakistan and training at different camps. And then they also called each other when they were back home in the UK. 
And so if you are British Security Services or the NSA or GCHQ, you say, why is this guy in Pakistan constantly talking to this guy? Another guy who, by the way, tried to blow up uh, the, uh, the underground uh, in 2005. And so if you watch all those telephonic selectors over time, you start saying, mm. maybe we should watch this guy. And mm-hmm. he keeps going back to Pakistan for some reason. And it's never clear why. Mm-hmm. And so one thing led to another, led to another. But if you actually talk to, and I, I interviewed a number of, of British police officers, and they actually had no idea why this was happening. Of course. They were kept out of the loop. Sure. Now, do we know whether that original tip came from British intelligence or American intelligence? So the interesting thing about the bombers of 2005 was that they had, they had no problem. They didn't hide their tracks at all. They didn't destroy anything. They didn't destroy their, uh, their cell phones. They didn't destroy any of their notes because they were all dead and they didn't really think about it. Mm-hmm. When the 721 bombers, the guys who did things two weeks later, uh, they were all caught, but they were caught with their cell phones. They were caught with all their stuff. And so the, all that information was pretty thoroughly checked out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all those, those phone numbers were monitored, I assume, for months to come. And then, uh, and then, in a in a counterterrorism investigation, you start watching selectors, and these some of these selectors keep moving, some of these selectors keep going to Pakistan. Some of the times they they leave, uh, and it's it's uh, it's something that that takes a long time and a lot of effort and a lot of diligence, and you have to keep watching. I the interesting thing, by the way, can can I just tell you one sure. one one funny question? And so so the main character, the main bomb, uh, the the ringleader in London goes to. Pakistan, because uh, his the ringleader said, we really need you to come back here because we're going to train you how to, we're going to show you how to make this specific bomb. We finally figured out how to, how to we, we overcame some sort of technical hurdle. We'd like you to come back and we'll show you how to do it. You come here for a couple of weeks and then we'll train you and then go home. Uh, at that point, MI5 was, uh, and MI6 was really watching this guy because he knew he, they thought he was up to no good. They had nothing on him at that point, but they thought that something was mm-hmm. really weird about suspicious guy. activities. Very suspicious. And so what they did was once you got on the plane and you leave British space, you leave uh, the capabilities of the British security services. And so before that, they called up their ISI uh, connection saying, like, Let's, this person is coming on this plane at this time. Watch this guy. We think he's up to no good. Just to s- clarify here, ISI mm-hmm. is the Pakistani Main Intelligence Service. Correct. Yes, uh, the Pakistani Intelligence Service. ISI folks said, "Okay, we'll keep that. Thank you very much for that information." They passed it along to some local folks at the airport to watch out for this guy. Mm-hmm. It turns out that these local folks were friends with Ali's family, mm-hmm. and so they told him. By the way you're being monitored, FYI. And so he shows up in country, they presumably shake hands and say hello, and they just let him go. Mm. Well, let him slip through. This just illustrates what we've known for a long time and continues to be a problem that uh, Pakistani society and the government and army and intelligence service are honeycombed with Al-Qaeda sympathizers. Yeah. So- it may not even be, uh, you know, honestly, and this was something I never really could quite figure out. It may not even have even been a sympathizer or uh, groups of sympathizers. It might have just been a familial connection. And mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I know so-and-so. He's coming in. He's a good kid. We'll just let him through. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I mentioned this story. I mentioned this story to uh, the CIA analyst who worked on this case uh, at the time. And he said, oh my goodness, I had no idea that was, the way, that was, that was how he got through security. It's because he just had friends in these security services. Mm, uh, family is everything, including or family even everything. utmost in terrorist circles. Or, yeah, we yeah. learned that from the Sopranos. So <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, it, it came to be that British intelligence learned that there were 18 potential suicide bombers involved in this plot. And it was freaking out and it assigned hundreds of officers and they were dragging these people out from local police and uh, other branches of intelligence in the military to surveil these people, 18 mm-hmm. potential bombers. Um, and then the CIA gets involved um, and there ensues um, a fierce debate between the CIA and British intelligence on, on what to do next. As you write in your book, the Americans lost their mind. I love that line because (laughs) the mindset of the CIA at that time was take them off the street just and maybe hustle them all to black sites and interrogate the hell out of them with enhanced interrogation techniques, as they call it. But the British were more legally minded and said, no, we want to bring these people to court. Uh, This is a, a debate that's yet to be settled. So what happened? How did that fight between the CIA and the British go. Right. So remember that these all the conspirators were all British citizens operating in uh, in London. And so they have uh, they are as British citizens in in their own home country. They have access to the legal system, a competent legal system and defense counsel and so forth. But what the United States really wanted to have happen was take out this cell as quickly as possible, especially since the planes were inbound to mostly to the United States. I think there was one that's going to Canada. Uh, and so they determined that the ringleader, Rashid Ralph in Pakistan, it was, by the way, moving around and, and nobody's molesting him at all. Uh, he, he would walk around and, and he visited his, his, his ancestral family home uh, and talked to his aunt and nobody was monitoring him. But they basically figured out that he was, monitor- he was using certain cell phones. And so he gets onto a public bus so even though he's a major Al Qaeda guy who's about to pull off a major attack, he still takes public transport, and he's and he and he's there, and he's got four phones in his in his in his pocket, and he and he was a very he was very interested in his own operational security, but for one reason he said nobody's watching me, and so he just falls asleep mm. in the bus, mm. and the ISI realized that one of his phones is on and he's moving, and it looks like he's in a bus, and so he tells the CIA, "What do we do? Do you want to take him out?" or let him go, and who knows what might happen to disappear into the tribal areas. And so finally, it turns out that the director of operations, Jose Rodriguez, happened to just be in Pakistan on a fact-finding tour. And uh, at the time, it was purely coincidence. And he says, take him out. And so that's what they did. They wrapped him up. But what happens was when you you take out the mastermind, who had been talking to the folks in London Mm-hmm. several times a day, multiple people in London, several times a day, and suddenly he goes, he goes silent. The, the concern was that the folks in London would go to ground, they would destroy all the evidence, and they would disappear, and you couldn't make a case against them. And so you've got this massive cell in London that you could not convict of anything. And so once that happened, you saw one of the biggest dragnets in British history occur 
almost over, literally overnight, within several hours of, of Rashid Ralph's uh, arrest in Pakistan. And what's really interesting was a lot of these police had no firearms. And so there's an incident, and I describe it in the book, where the main quartermaster and the main ringleader are meeting in a, in a, in a parking lot in East London. And there's just chit-chatting about whatever they're chit-chatting. And the surveillance team who was given the, the, the call said, you've got to take these guys out right now. Surveillance team says, we're the surveillance team. We don't have guns. They said, too bad. You've got to go get them mm. before armed response shows up. Huh. And so they basically tackled them huh. without guns. And, you had, and they had no idea whether these guys had weapons. They would fight back. The bomb was in the car. They were near, in a car park. They had no idea. They just had to do their duty. And that's what they did. I mean, armed response eventually shows up. But um, that, that takes a lot of... Can you imagine here in the United States, uh, you're monitoring two major Al-Qaeda uh, uh, operatives and you have to take them out without weapons? No, uh, that would never happen in America. We, yeah. we shoot first. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> did they know, did U.S. and British authorities know at the time that these guys had carried out a dry run to bring down all these airliners? As far as I know, they had no idea. Hmm. We only found out about this because the main fella in Pakistan escapes custody, escapes uh, Pakistani custody. And then a little while later, he writes his own after action report. And he says, this is what happened when I was in, Britain, in Pakistani custody. And by the way, this is how we uh, carried out some of these attacks. And this is what we did. And so this whole concept of a dry run occurring, um, where they're going to smuggle uh, liquid explosives onto planes and then fly it around and subvert uh, security. They had no idea. We had no idea. Did the CIA have um, good reason to believe that if they didn't take this ringleader off the streets, Ralph, if they didn't roll him up, that the plot would have succeeded? It's possible that the, uh, and this is one of those unknown unknowns. Remember that uh, President Bush was being briefed on this thing, on this plot, multiple times a day at, at one point. Uh, he was in constant communication with uh, Tony Blair, the British Prime Minister, about this plot. And the entire national security apparatus, the counterterrorism apparatus, knew about this plot and were, were, were trying to figure out what they were doing. So Fran Townsend, who was the, uh, the assistant to the president on homeland security and counterterrorism, every day, President Bush would go up to Fran Townsend and say, do we let the planes fly for another 24 hours? And she would think about it and she would talk to some of the top people and they said, like, okay, let's let it go for another 24 hours. But imagine if you have to make a choice to shut down the entire airspace around the United States every 24 hours because of this plot. Hmm. People were really on tenterhooks. They, and, and, and the United States had to rely on the British to actually pull the trigger. So mm -hmm. they actually had to go in and arrest all these guys and the British kept asking for more time because they wanted to make a legal case, mm -hmm. which I totally get. And if the roles were reversed, if uh, there was a major attack going to strike Britain and the, and the British needed the FBI to take down all these guys, there'd be immense pressure to try to make the FBI move. And so I, I am I'm, I'm really sympathetic toward the British security establishment. But the United States decided to make a choice. And, uh, and that's what we did. That's another aspect of the, of the story, which makes the book so fascinating and relevant to this day, is this debate uh, about 
you know, taking terrorists off the streets and uh, by kidnapping them, essentially, uh, and, and interrogating them. We don't have the black sites anymore, as far as we know. Um, and I think that's true. Uh, but uh, Guantanamo is still open. Um, and we still seem adverse here to arresting people and bringing them to trial in the Southern District of New York, which where usually these cases are heard. Uh, and we've had successful prosecutions of terrorists uh, in numerous cases, but we, we still seem a, a, averse to that. But let me ask you another question. Hundreds of police and other security officials were involved in surveilling these 18 potential uh, uh, aviation terrorists. It's amazing to me that it didn't leak. How do you account for that? It is, it is amazing. Uh, my, uh, it, by the way, so when they wrapped up everybody, they, they actually arrested 24 people. Uh, and a lot of these peripheral people were let go without charge. Uh, there was a reason why they were monitoring those other folks, but for one reason or another, they could not make the charges stick. It is also incredible to me that the that it didn't leak at, at all. Um, there was so much pressure put on the police. There's so much pressure put on the intelligence services. You know this, the United States is a, is a, is a leaky ship. And the fact that the United States uh, at the very top, all the way down uh, to the, the line analyst, could keep their mouth shut over uh, over this issue uh, was was very impressive. But because the entire security establishment knew about it, it just so happened that this this stuff happened in August, and so August, as as everybody knows in Europe, everybody goes on vacation, and so Tony Blair was actually on literally on vacation as this was happening. He was in uh, he was in the Caribbean, hmm. uh, and so it was a little embarrassing for him at the time that he wasn't actually in country for the grand takedown uh, yeah. of these of this great conspiracy. Well, putting that aside, you say that the case had a more or less happy ending. What's the more and what's the less? More or less is we saved lives. We saved thousands of lives. We did it. Uh, we, and I mean, we, I mean, the U.S. and the U.K. and Pakistan. I, I don't want to, I don't want to say that they didn't have a, a positive role here too. All played their parts took these guys out, took it out safely. Nobody got hurt. Um, they did it legally. Uh, they did it in, in a manner, uh, 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 in a, they, they did it in a way that, that allowed people to do, to create legal prosecutions and keep people safe. That's thousands of people are alive today who might've been on those planes, uh, who are alive today and having, you know, regular lives, they're leading their regular lives. And that's what, that's what we want. We want government to keep us safe. And so this is a great, a great uh, success, a counterterrorism success. I say less because, because the United States jump-started this process, the British weren't able to make some of the prosecution, uh, some of the legal cases stick. In fact, one of the major guys gets away totally scot-free. Scott Free, who was not convicted of anything. Mm. A lot of these people were also, especially the periphery folks, this has happened now 15 years ago, they're out of prison. Uh, the British legal system allows these individuals, I mean, it's pretty lenient on, on what they, on uh, uh, their, their jail sentences. The ringleaders and a few other folks are still in prison, but they'll be out eventually. And Wait. number three is, is, I am sure, I'm convinced that there were people who were involved in the plot that got away and we never figured out who they were. 
And the reason why I think this is because at about a week or two or three later, police in High Wycombe, which is an area between London and, and Oxford, discovered high, concentrated hydrogen peroxide in bottles along the M40 motorway, along the highway. Somebody was destroying evidence and we have no idea who it was. Mm. So somebody knew about the plot and got away. This begs the question of whether these same individuals who got away or were undiscovered um, or others yet unknown or still unknown could carry out a successful aviation terrorism plot today. It's possible. What the British police discovered as they arrested everybody and they started physically going through their phones and their other uh, materials was they were in connection with other people in other parts of the country. So London, London is the epicenter for the security services. Uh, and so most of the, most of the uh, resources go toward the capital city. And only in 2005, 2006, did they start pushing out things out to other parts of the British Isles. And so if you, if you were thinking of doing something in Manchester or Liverpool or Leeds or somewhere else, there was a lot less focus on that because there's just a lot less, uh, you know, there's only so many resources you can put toward a, a situation. And so when they arrested all these folks, they found out they had all these other connections to other guys uh, who might or might not be carrying out attacks. There's one fellow who actually was a minor. I don't actually know whatever happened to that guy. Uh, mm. and they had a lot of connections because one of the ringleaders kept talking to the Pakistan, uh, to their Pakistani folks and the, and the Pakistani fellow kept telling, uh, the ringleader, don't give so-and-so all your explosives. Well, why on earth would you give explosives to somebody else? If you're actually going to carry out your own attack, mm. which to me suggests that there were other people involved and we actually don't know anything about them because nobody was ever prosecuted beyond this beyond this sort of cell. So uh, this, the discovery of this plot led to much more stringent uh, security measures at airports that we're all familiar with now, uh, mm -hmm. taking bottles on board, uh, taking your shoes off. That, that became, uh, that, that was instituted after a separate plot, so-called shoe bomber plot. Um, so would you say that those security measures uh, have been effective? Do we know? Can we measure that? Well, that's we haven't had the, that, we that, haven't had another uh, hijacking or airplane bombing, so I guess you'd have to say these uh, security measures have been effective. I well, I suppose so. So the interesting thing is is what you you only you'll you only have enough evidence. You only have positive evidence. It's hard to have, find negative evidence. So how many people were not blown up today is a is an impossible question to ask. But the fact is that this happened in 2006, it's been 15 years. We've had other aviation terrorist attacks occur, uh, both in airports uh, and on planes, including obviously one in uh, a particularly terrible one in, in Sharm el-Sheikh in, in Egypt against a, a Russian plane and, and a variety of other ones. But what we've actually discovered is that and I think the terrorist organizations have really discovered is that if you want to carry out a mega, a mega conspiracy, it's actually really difficult to pull this off. It's much easier to just give some guys some guns, walk into a, an airport. Uh, any one of us, anybody with a, a semi-automatic weapon go into an airport and do untold damage and get on the news. Or a concert venue. Or like a concert Paris. venue. Yeah. 
or uh, or drive a car into yeah. a into a Christmas into a Christmas market or any of those sort of things. And so what we've actually seen is terrorist organizations say, "Listen, you don't have to spend tons of money and create." Mm-hmm. you know elaborate plots when you can you've got all the weapons of destruction at your fingertips today yeah and that's actually what we see yeah and you don't expose yourself uh, all your operatives are being rolled up if you generate a very elaborate plot so absolutely anyway aki paris we have to leave it there what a fascinating story you've gotten on to uh i urge everyone to get a copy of uh, his new of aki paris's new book Disruption Inside the Largest Counterterrorism Investigation in History. Congratulations. Talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Aki Peretz is also Director of Open Source Intelligence at Capital Security and Risk Group in Washington. His previous book, Find, Fix, Finish, Inside the Counterterrorism Campaigns that Killed Bin Laden and Devastated Al-Qaeda, was published in 2012. Boy, that was a close one, Jeff. Boy, there's been a lot of close ones, according to the accounts of many uh, security officials, CIA and FBI officials here. We'll never know because not all of them are talked about. But that one did get close. And um, just some great uh, detective work pulled it together. Although there's still some mysteries, as Aki Barrett said in the interview, about exactly where the original tip came from that led to uh, U.S. and uh, U.K. agents breaking up that plot. Again, the funny thing about this was that it was a really intricate, sophisticated plot that required a lot of very careful work. And yet the guys that were doing it were so feckless, they couldn't even get their suicide videos straight. So thank goodness. Yeah, maybe we were saved by dopes. A lot of criminals are dopes. Well, anyway, we were saved for that one. Well, that's another episode of the Spy Talk podcast. Thanks for sticking with us. And we hope you'll be around next week. For our next podcast, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Jean Meserve. Be well. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.